it's quite clear quite often that certain practices have negative impacts. And what we really should be arguing about is whether we're prepared to accept those impacts. Hello and welcome to the All About Energy podcast, where we bring you insights into the worlds of energy, climate change and sustainability. Each episode, we go through some of the latest news before bringing you an interview with a special guest. As always, I'm your host, James, and today I'm joined by a first-time co-host, member of the Centre for Energy Ethics, chair of the Conservation Ecology Special Interest Group of the British Ecological Society, and associate lecturer in the School of Geography and Sustainable Development at the University of St. Andrews, Dr. Lydia Cole. Welcome, Lydia. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, James. Well, it's great to be here and looking forward to discussing all sorts of things related to energy and environment. Yeah, it should be a fun one today. Um, Lydia, as you know, each episode we go through some of the news uh, from the worlds of energy, sustainability and climate change. Uh, So do you have something prepared for us today? Yes. So this is a report. It's all about behaviour change. And I think I was particularly interested in exploring it further because my assumption is that there's a lot of behaviour change that has to happen in order for us to reach net zero as a nation, as a a world. But this report turns that on its head a little bit and says that actually we don't need as much behaviour change. We don't need to change what we do as much as we think we do We do in order to get to net zero. Well, that's surprising. Um, yeah, it was surprising and it made me rethink my strategy to achieving net zero and or the way that I sort of engage with people or question whether I need to change the way that I engage with people around mitigating climate change and the individual changes that are required. So this is a report written by the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. They obviously take a or trying to take an evidence-based approach um, looking at global policy issues And this report is called Planes, Homes and Automobiles, The Role of Behaviour Change in Delivering Net Zero, published back in August. And it's part of their Time to Zero In series, which makes the case for an inclusive transition to net zero that focuses on people, fairness, technology, markets and communities. Sounds like a fairly inclusive approach. Yeah, yeah. The report as it says, um, aims to shine light on the behaviour changes required for net zero by asking two questions. Um, First of all, what consumer behaviour changes are likely to be required to achieve net zero in the UK? And how ready is the UK public to make these changes? So the report says that we don't need the radical changes in behaviour that some of us think. But there are six key behavioural changes that are required to reach net zero. So they explain that there are changes within homes and consumption. Um, So thinking about energy, there are changes in transport that are needed. Um, So for example, increased walking, cycling, use of public transport. That actually, when we're thinking about car use, the kilometers per driver only has to go down by 4% from 2020 to 2035. And there are changes within diet, but that comes into consumption as well, I think. But um, diet is often pulled out as a separate one because we're talking about meat consumption and some controversial changes like that. One of the the key outcomes of the paper which drew me to it initially is that it, it talks about only needing people to reduce their flights, both international and domestic, by 6%. Maybe we thought that we might need to reduce flights by, I don't know, 96% at the individual level but actually they say it's only six percent so up to 2019 most of the changes that we've seen to reduce emissions have been technology based with very little behavior change but along with the changes in technology which are happening at the moment um, coupled with some quite targeted specific behavior changes that should be enough and this report talks about the importance of being quite savvy or as i said targeted about who within society makes those changes rather than blanket changes coming up against resistance with people that really aren't going to change don't understand the intricacies of climate change like some others do don't understand what changes they need to make on an individual level are resistant to those changes those people don't necessarily need to be targeted if there are others who will make the changes 
with um, smaller incentives, those are the ones that can make the changes and we can still reach the targets. Oh, right. That's really interesting because, I mean, to break people up by willingness to change is something that I hadn't heard in relation to climate change before because normally when we're breaking people up, it's about impact and it's often a, a wealth thing. Yeah, I think it's been pointed out a couple of times on this podcast that the upper middle and upper classes, if you want to call them that, divided economically across the world have a significantly larger impact than um, than other groups of individuals despite being lower in population. So I wonder if this willingness may track the climate debate influencing that middle and upper middle and even upper class. Yeah, when they were looking at the knowledge amongst the different economic classes and age groups and professional classes as well, and obviously there's some correlation between some of those different variables, they saw that younger people had more knowledge and more understanding and acceptance of the need for behaviour change. Those who were more highly educated had a better understanding and acceptance of the need for behaviour change, whether they enact that or not. But having the knowledge and the acceptance um, could lead to willingness and actual change in behaviour. So perhaps that's what the report is picking on as well, that if those people who know more are more willing, possibly the higher polluters in terms of carbon emissions, if they can change their behaviour, then that could have a large enough impact on achieving net zero. Oh, interesting, interesting. And I think you said that the study assumes a certain rate of technological advancement as well? Yes, yeah, which needs more support. I think that we, we need faster change in technologies. And I mean, it's also to do with acceptance of the need for change, isn't it? And markets, and you know, if we know what we need to do. Um, and the report talks about the government needing to be clearer about what needs to change and also integrating behaviour changes more into the strategy. Um, because at the moment, I think, certainly for me, net zero seems like a long way away. I don't quite know how we're going to get there, if at all. And that's an issue, because if we don't know what we're aiming for, we don't know that we can get there, then there's a lot more um, apathy, I think, and lack of um, commitment and involvement in reaching that shared goal. But if the government is able to lay out what is needed, have a clear concept on net zero and a clear plan for how we're going to get there, coupling the behaviour changes with the technologies and showing how it's part of the bigger picture, we would get further towards working together to achieve this what seems like a relatively and is is seen by the public as a relatively unachievable goal by 2050. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because if the government were to do more than say just have subsidies for electric vehicles or, or whatever, if they actually laid out a plan that people could adhere to or not, but that would let individuals choose to do to do what they perceive to be the right thing and as this report seems to suggest, enough people doing the right thing is probably going to make a significant difference. We just have to know what those right things are. Yeah, the, the report says the number of behaviour changes that really matter is relatively limited and targeting those who are most able and willing to act in the next few years could enable us to achieve these behaviour change targets and to take on the technologies and to kind of mainstream the approach that's needed. Yeah, that's really interesting. And as uh, as we said earlier, quite surprising. I mean, it sounds so achievable when yeah. laid out like that. Yes, yes. Because, yeah, as, as you say, uh, for me too, net zero is something that at times at least feels like a pipe dream. So, yeah, to, to hear some positive news is actually a, a relatively good thing, especially kind of in the lead up to COP where all the leaders around the world will be hopefully discussing ideas like this goal setting. Yes, yes. And I think you've picked a really important or pulled out a really important point that it feels unachievable. And one of the figures in the report shows how over time there's a reduction in the number of people believing that we're going to achieve net zero, which is terrible, really, because <laughs> you've got to believe in something really to work towards it, especially 
with the maybe passion and energy that's required to get there. So we really need to believe that we can get there. We need to have the plan, the, the steps in place, the pathway to show us how we can get there, the scenarios, um, and then work towards that as a society. Yeah, because once you make those points explicit, then you can have a conversation around them. Just by having these steps in place, by having these targets that are explicit, I think that that will go a long way to creating buy-in. And if we can create that buy-in, then it sounds plausible. It does sound plausible. I, I wonder what isn't in the report. I haven't thought carefully enough about it to, to really interrogate what might be missing. But in terms of environment ecosystems, which is more my my bag, my research, we might not need behaviour changes so much around carbon emissions, but do we still need to think differently about the way that we interact with the environment? So for example, farming, talking to any agronomist, soil scientist, I think they would probably say we do need large scale behaviour change around farming in order for us to keep getting food from the land in sufficient quantities. And I mean, that's that's part of the whole argument of people who are against these individual changes is that individuals don't actually make up that higher percentage of the world's emissions. It's a not even too large handful of corporations and companies around the world that are responsible for a lot of this. But it's an interesting juggling act between mm. blaming large corporations and governments for not doing their part on the one hand, but then on the other hand, not doing anything ourselves in terms of consumer behavior, in terms of our own attitudes, um, because we can make a difference, maybe not as an individual, but as a collective, which again goes back to that community-wide goal setting. Yep. And if we remember that every company, however large it is, is made up of individuals. And so we have to think about the individual actions behind every action, however large or small, I suppose. And yeah, try and feed all the way up through from individuals, communities to the, the large corporates. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, thank you for bringing us that, uh, that breath of fresh air in terms of some good news. <laughs> I'm going to go on to my news piece now, which is, I don't think either good or bad. It's just an interesting discussion point. And the discussion point is around nuclear fusion. The news piece that I was looking at predominantly was uh, a piece in Science Business by David Matthews, published on the 16th of September. Nuclear fusion strives a place at COP26 green energy table. And uh, it kind of goes into the debates around the importance of nuclear fusion and whether we should be spending as much time, money and resources on fusion research. So nuclear fusion has been hailed as the solution for the world's energy problems since the 1940s. However, with the need for a quick transition away from fossil fuels being highlighted more and more by the effects of climate change, detractors of this technology are beginning to call more loudly than ever for fusion to be dismissed as a plausible solution given the net zero goals that many countries have adopted around the world. First of all, let's uh, take a step back. What is nuclear fusion power and why has it taken so long for us to figure it out? Well, fusion power is a proposed form of power generation that would create electricity by using heat from nuclear fusion reactors. So as opposed to our current reactors, which are fission reactors, using heavy atoms that split apart, in a fusion process, we get two lighter atomic nuclei, and it's usually hydrogen, to combine to form a heavier nucleus while releasing energy. So two hydrogen nuclei come together, form a helium nucleus, uh, and releases a whole bunch of energy. This is the same process which caused the stars, including our sun, to produce heat and light. And that may hopefully give you some kind of indication as to why it might be so hard to control and harness for the production of electricity. In order to take place, nuclear fusion requires fuel and sufficient sustained temperature and pressure, which varies based on the nuclei involved. Current designs use heavier hydrogen isotopes, deuterium or tritium, to lower the temperatures and pressures needed for the reaction. But despite this, 
they still need to reach temperatures of around 100 million degrees, and that's Celsius or Kelvin, because once you're that high, it makes very little difference which one you're using. So just even reaching these temperatures has proven to be a challenge, let alone being able to inject sufficient fuel and control the substances involved. There have been some recent breakthroughs. Uh, you may have seen in the news uh, the Bill Gates-backed group from MIT creating a new uh, super magnet or superconductor magnet. And some privately funded groups aim to have a prototype reactor in place in the next 10 to 15 years. But despite this, even proponents of the technology admit that it seems unlikely that nuclear fusion reactors will be a significant part of the power grid before 2050. And why does this matter now then? Why do they want this part of um, the green energy discussion? Well, as I've mentioned, research into nuclear fusion power has been ongoing for nearly 80 years. During this time, the amount of money invested into the research dwarfs that of any other single energy source. The ITER experiment alone, which involves a consortium of around 30 countries, has had a budget of over 6.6 .6 billion euros since 2007. And in 2020 alone, the US Energy Department allocated 671 million US dollars to fusion projects. So, given the impact which climate change is having on the world right now, detractors of fusion power have begun to call more loudly than ever for an end to this level of funding for these projects, suggesting that that level of investment would be better spent ensuring a clean and just transition to proven green technologies, such as solar or wind. As that debate rages with COP26 coming up, the COP organizers still haven't said what level of discussion is going to occur around nuclear fusion and the funding and research into that. So is this something we should be investing in, Lydia? Uh, I feel like with nuclear, and I've been meaning to do some personal research on it for, for interest for quite some time now because you gave a great summary but it's complicated isn't it i feel like there's a lot happening with nuclear a lot of money as you say and energy time investment behind it but is it really the solution why are we so fixated on it in a way at these high levels lots of people are calling for more localized decentralized energy sources this isn't that i don't think i don't know in any way if it could be that and it also is happening, as you say, on a timescale, which is too late, surely. We need to be making changes now, else we, we won't get to our net zero target on time. We'll spend all of these years investing in sort of interim measures on the way to this large scale investment in this, this source that will kick in down the line. At that point, will there be new technologies anyway that will mean that this investment is relatively redundant? Yeah, and that's certainly the, the argument that the detractors of fusion energy in particular are taking up. On the other hand, there's the argument that, well, if fusion reactors can come online, there's the, um, the potential there that they could replace existing fission reactors, which, I mean, there's been a huge de-escalation of uh, nuclear fission reactors uh, around the world, probably to the detriment of carbon emissions though there are a whole bunch of other issues in, involved, high-profile accidents such as Fukushima and Chernobyl, as well as the issues of storage around radioactive material. But in order to replace that, we're going to need something that is able to take up that the load without necessarily um, resulting in more carbon emissions. And it's something that doesn't get said enough that solar and wind power have their own quite significant sustainability issues. Wind turbines at this current point are completely un unrecyclable. They're made out of carbon fiber and literally have to be thrown out when they're finished with. And you have to be able to store that energy that they created. So unlike nuclear, which is more similar to traditional gas or coal, which can be increased and, and decreased in terms of the amount of electricity output it has, oh, until we at least find a way of storing efficiently electricity produced by solar or wind, there's always going to be a need for a constant source of energy. Yes. The question is, 
is that money spent now going to be worth that more consistent form of energy in the future? There is no right answer right now to that, right? Unfortunately, we, we can't say, yes, we know this is going to be worth it because people who are pro will say, will say exactly that. Yeah, of course. There are lots of arguments yeah. for, but there are plenty of quite urgent arguments against. Yeah. You could play devil's advocate and say that part of the reason we're in this climate crisis is because we didn't think of the needs of the future 25 years ago or not enough. So yeah. would we be shooting ourselves in the foot to stop this funding? Or is this something that really needs to be looked at and addressed? And I guess the listeners can, can decide for themselves, I hope. That's a really good point. We have to experiment in a way and we have to fund these things in order to find out, don't we? And everything's a trade-off when we're talking about energy environment. And I, I remember being part of the panel discussion that you had at the, the Energy Ethics 2020 conference, I think, and there were a few people talking about the complexities of the different sources of renewables, as you were saying about wind and solar. Where do you get the resources from? How do you recycle them, etc.? So there are definitely trade-offs. Yeah, I guess there's a risk. We have to use our best judgment, whatever that means, to make decisions about the future and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not like the technological advances that have led us this far and then will continue onwards are only applicable to, to nuclear fusion. So there, there is that other, other benefit uh, involved. Potentially. Potentially. We don't know anything for certain, of course. Yeah, potentially. Yep. All yep. right. Well, I think that's about all for our news this episode. With that, let's transition from energy to the environment and head into our interview with Harry Watkins, director of the St. Andrews Botanic Gardens. Our guest today is the director of the St. Andrews Botanic Garden, Harry Watkins. Harry's background is as a landscape architect specialising in conservation and heritage landscapes. Through this role, he was allowed to develop and explore a range of further interests in urban forestry, functional biogeography, and biosecurity. These research interests precipitated his PhD at the University of Sheffield and inform his work at the Botanic Garden, especially visible in projects such as the Tangled Bank. More on that later. Alongside his work at St Andrews, Harry is also actively involved in teaching at the Bartlett School of Architecture, where he takes two master's courses on the interface of design and biology. Welcome to the podcast, Harry. Thank you for your time. Nice to meet you, James. Nice to see you, Lydia. So one term that I think we can jump off from uh, in that introduction, Harry, uh, urban forestry. Uh, it sounds like a bit of an oxymoron. Uh, could you explain a bit more about what this term actually means? Yeah, sure. Well, it's an interesting one because you kind of talk about it all the time in this field and you just assume that everyone is not only knows exactly what it is, but is fully supportive of what it can do. So, yeah, it's worth backpedaling a bit, isn't it? Because um, urban forestry really describes all of the trees and woody plants that we find in an urban environment. The real meaning of a forest is simply an area of wooded landscape and those trees can be patchy, they can be dense, they can be distributed and connected in all sorts of ways. We use, its technical meaning is quite different, I think, from when we think of a lot of forestry commission woodlands, for example, which are dense patches of conifers. A forest can be a whole kind of patchy landscape of trees. And in many ways, that's what an urban forest is. It's just that there are sometimes buildings or roads or parks in between the trees. So in an urban landscape, most people know about the importance of plant life in terms of taking in carbon dioxide and producing oxygen through photosynthesis. But what other benefits do these urban forests or even individual trees have in that setting? Well, they have a whole range of benefits, really. It's quite handy to think of the ecosystem framework because that kind of gives you a ready rubric for understanding there are supporting services that kind of facilitate kind of habitat networks. There are regulating services that support water infiltration and carbon dioxide cycling. But then there are the whole other kind of side of the coin and in the way that I see it, really, which is to do with the well-being benefits, the benefits that we derive as humans from them. So you can think of the difference that a, an avenue of trees might make in a street, for example. It may not be something that you observe or are even consciously aware of as doing kind of 
good for you, but nonetheless, it's there playing a role in your subconscious and, and we get all kinds of benefits from that. Harry, how much is that accepted, that view around the well-being implications of, say, street trees amongst, say, local councils? We're hearing more and more stories about trees being chopped down in cities and campaigns to look after these often old trees in cities. It feels like something that everyone can get behind intuitively. You know, we all understand that these plants have compelling stories and benefits. How well it's accepted, though, is a really interesting question because it feels like there's a disconnect there between recognising the benefits and then whatever trade-offs might be required when it comes to decision-making. And it's really when you start to see those trade-offs being made and navigated that the true acceptance really starts to become apparent. We saw Emmanuel Macron at the IUCN conference giving this rousing speech about the importance of trees and habitats. And yet at the same time, his governments are undertaking all kinds of activities which might, you might easily say, undermine things like that. To take a more local example, when I was starting out my PhD at Sheffield, there was a huge campaign to do with save Sheffield trees because lots of trees were being felled as part of an infrastructure programme. And it was really interesting there to see the disconnect between the city councillors and the local politicians proclaiming the importance of trees and at the same time handing an enormous contract for road infrastructure works that just straightforward felled mature and valuable trees. I'm not sure how well it's accepted. I think when we see politicians navigating those trade-offs, that's the real test of how well they are understood and appreciated. There's so much research that comes out on an almost daily basis which points to these benefits. I'm not sure how much more research almost is needed on that front. It's pretty clear now, it seems to me, that these benefits are there. Um, It's not an easy one to answer, really. The priority, I guess, when it comes to habitat creation or landscape management or infrastructure development, the priority really needs to be towards safeguarding mature trees. The research shows, and some of the stuff that we've been looking at, shows that there is a significant carbon cost associated with planting new trees. It takes a long time for a new tree to start becoming carbon positive. And when you roll into that, the high mortality of new plantings, Some of the research that we carried out shows that it's like a 30% mortality rate within five years of newly planted trees. And then that, of course, increases when you look to a 10 and 20 year perspective. Planting trees is not a straightforward endeavor, you know, and there are high mortality and carbon costs associated with it. And so wherever you have an opportunity to safeguard an existing tree that is healthy and mature and pumping out oxygen and sequestering water, you've got to take it and you've got to protect it. So where do you think that breakdown is occurring? If the research shows that the well-being side of thing, as well as kind of the, the benefits of maintaining these um, mature trees from a, a climate perspective, where's the breakdown? Is it between the research and the public, the research and everyone, or is it just between the, the researchers and, and the policymakers? I think it happens in a couple of areas. The first area is that there is a significant blind spot that we uncovered as part of this research. And that blind spot is simply to do with people who specify plants, trees, and the people who produce trees and the people who plant them. That blind spot is to do with simply knowing what the right tree is for the right place. It's almost impossible to find that right tree. So I think that's a a significant blind spot for us and where a number of breakdowns happen. We've then got the whole world of supply chains in actually growing those trees, propagating them, producing them, then delivering them to the site. And part of our research has uncovered that very often the tree that is selected goes nowhere near the site that's, that it's intended for. And a very different tree quite often turns up to the one that the landscape architect might have expected. But then I think there's also a, a significant blind spot in policy and public dialogue. You know, I, I think of it in quite a similar way to the way that we talk about farming. You know, and there's very often a big tension between farmers and conservationists and then the broader public. Farmers take a lot of stick for kind of practice, practices which are perceived as kind of being damaging to the environment. You know, and that could be to do with dredging ditches. It could be to do with the application of pesticides or, or phosphorus, for example, or, or slurry or whatever it might be. But at the same time, 
there's this kind of counter argument that comes through from organizations like the NFU or, or interests or organizations that represent farmers, which talk about the many positive things that farmers do. And it feels to me that dialogue or debate or even argument might be entirely wrong placed because it's quite clear quite often that certain practices have negative impacts. And what we really should be arguing about is whether we're prepared to accept those impacts. And I think that's really where the argument actually is coming from. It's whether we're willing to accept those trade-offs. And that kind of brings us back to that earlier question of how well accepted the benefits of street trees are to people and ecosystem services. I think they are really well accepted. It's whether we're willing to pay for them. That's really where the debate needs to be, I think. And do you think we also need to be more explicit about the trade-offs involved? So sort of outline more clearly what the, the pros and cons are and then be able to weigh them up. Absolutely, because you see this playing out with so many good intentions that end up having unintended consequences. It could be to do with smaller crop yields from organic farming. It could be to do with people protesting against um, forestry plantations. You know, the simple equation there being the UK is one of the largest net importers of timber in the world. And if we don't produce our timber within the UK, it means that we're going to have to import it from somewhere else and someone else is going to have to deal with the negative consequences of kind of really dense and overstocked conifer plantings. So we need to be much more upfront, I think, about the prices that we're willing to pay for the goods that we consume and the ecosystem services and disservices that follow from what we consume. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it's a point that has come up a couple of times in the podcast actually about costing and pricing basically environmental factors whether that be the the cost of carbon accounting for that correctly or the cost to local biodiversity as well, which um, I'm, I'm sure is a, is a factor here. We've talked about individual trees, but I also noticed early on that you were mentioning, or you were talking about forests, urban landscape as, as forests. To what extent do you think we need to kind of reframe our, the way that we're thinking about an urban landscape to think about a, a network of plants or an environment rather than focusing on individual trees. Yeah, like um, a few seconds ago, we were talking about like uh, landscape architects having this mantra and we chant right tree for the right place. It kind of feels like conservationists when the Lawson report came out. I don't know if you remember that. And people were saying bigger, better, joined up, connected, all that kind of thing over and over and over again. And it kind of feels like we're in the same territory. It's a really interesting question how you scale up from individual benefits to community benefits. And that's part of what our research is trying to unpick you know, how you scale up biological functioning from a single organ, like a root or a leaf or a stem, up to whole plant physiology, and then up into multitrophic kind of networks. It's a, it's a really interesting question because it forces you to think perhaps differently in a couple of ways. It forces you to move between scales of organisation, and that's really difficult for human beings. We're really good at having either tunnel vision and we focus in on something really specific like i've just trodden on a plug that really hurts <laughs> and that excludes all other aspects of thought process in your mind at the time or you kind of have these moments of reflection where everything kind of feels connected and important and translating between those two scales is really difficult for us as a species i think and so when we translate that into things like an urban forest or communities of plants in our neighborhoods that, yeah, becomes a real challenge because it's very easy for us to get fixated on the tree in my front garden. It's starting to create quite a lot of dry patches and my dahlias aren't growing very well underneath it. Or wanting to create an area in my front garden so that I can park my car. Scaling up from there into the kind of cumulative benefits of the tree in your garden or the area of lawn which sequesters water and manages runoff water across the street which then relieves pressure on the kind of sewer network or the drainage system these are really hard things for us to process intellectually and account for in terms of cost and for us to i guess as well build these kind of emotional bridges which is really what's underpinning that sense of kind of community responsibility i'm not sure there's an easy or a straightforward answer to any of this but i guess it's got to begin with being aware of those patterns of scaling and responsibility and and um, an opportunity too, isn't it? And feeling like it matters. So if you look at an urban jungle, even somewhere like St Andrews, you, you see all the pebbles that fill front gardens and all of the concrete. Think, well, if I plant a few 
even just flowers will that make a difference but then an organization like bug life which is trying to get these networks of flower meadows or microhabitats almost that connect up areas for movement of pollinators and that can make a huge difference just providing some habitat at small scales within gardens in some sort of network for pollinators and that that will then feed up to the higher trophic levels and and we forget that pollinators are essential for a whole tree to grow in some cases um so understanding the connections between the scales as well i think is so important isn't it oh absolutely and it's it's just so easy to get down cast or depressed when you're doing this kind of scaling and thinking like me planting some primroses will that make a difference in my window yes it will it will make a difference and the more that we start this journey and talk about it and try and encourage ourselves and other our friends people at work that kind of thing the more that this kind of scaling starts to rapidly make a difference i was thinking about when we're talking about community organizations uh, and we often talk about matching houses quite often to the character of or buildings to the character of the neighborhood. Should we be talking more about matching gardens and landscapes with what's going on around? It kind of depends who you mean by we, because within the field of landscape architecture and urban planning, there is a whole world of landscape character assessments, which we use to describe landscapes. And these operate at different scales from like neighborhoods and local plans up to national character areas. And these describe things like the different layers of geology, the social and cultural uses of a landscape, the habitats, the hydrology, all these kinds of layers. And there is this kind of system in place. The interesting question to my mind is, does it make a difference? <laughs> what we do in universities, in the courses that we teach on and then we go through our training, we jump up and down at landscape architects and talk about the importance of landscape character and landscape character assessment and landscape and visual impact assessment and these things are kind of part of our bread and butter as landscape architects in our practice and, our, and in our training landscape architects are a very small subset of society and it's really a bit of a well i guess the only thing hurt here is my pride but i think it's been a moment of realization to realize that not everyone appreciates or even understands what a landscape architect does or why they do it but landscape architects do try and think about this kind of thing. The next thing I think to think about is, is to test to what extent this really does make a difference because, again, some of the research we've been carrying out looks at things like do landscape designs that are submitted for housing developments, infrastructure projects, new hospitals, schools, parks, that kind of thing, do the plants that are selected in development projects vary according to location or project type and some of the things we've been finding is that no, we've been surveying plants that are used in development projects all the way from kind of Cornwall up to the Cairngorms. And we found that the same plants are used, whether they're in a podium landscape or a swale in Plymouth, as they are up in Inverness in a cemetery or a front garden or a housing development, whatever that might be. And it's kind of a deep breath moment, I think, for the industry when this research is published, because it shows that in spite of this whole infrastructure we have that's you know, developed originally through European legislation that cascaded through into UK government and local policy, this whole world of practice and research that is part of our bread and butter, for some reason, isn't translating into practice. That is quite a daunting thing, I think, for industry to take on board, because you're right, we should be taking account of it. We talk about taking account of it. Policymakers talk about us taking account of it. It's all over the 25-year environment plan. It's all over our local plans in county council, municipal authorities, unitary authorities, all that kind of thing. And yet it seems it's not translating into practice. Is that just a matter of aesthetics and maybe economics taking the, the front seat in biodiversity taking the back seat. I'm going to say something which is going to upset a lot of my colleagues in the landscape architecture world. I think it's laziness. You know, I think it's familiarity. I think it's people being under pressure commercially. Um, they've got to turn things around quickly. Um, people fall back on plants that they're familiar with, that they're used to specifying, that they know are available in the supply chain. 
I think it's people not knowing where to get the guidance from. I think it's people not having the time to read ecological assessments. When we were doing part of this research, we did a number of interviews with landscape architects operating in different types of practices. One of the people we interviewed is working for one of the biggest landscape architecture and civil engineering organizations in the world. You know, um, They are responsible for a lot of infrastructure projects in the UK. They, they were saying, when it comes to something like a motorway, they don't have time to process what an NVC classification means, what the ecologist is recommending. And that to me was a real kind of, I don't know, what would you say, like a, a real black coffee moment. Because it's kind of thinking, hey, in all of the landscape assessments, you said you would take on board the ecologist's advice, you would take on board this assessment of the local landscape character and the habitats and all that kind of thing. And here you are saying for a multi-million pound project that you don't have time to read text. And they were really frustrated because the information just wasn't digestible to them because it wasn't in a list format. It was in a paragraph. You know, and this was a fundamental problem for them, that it was in a paragraph. And you kind of think, well, at this point, you know, there's a fundamental breakdown in the industry somehow. If the professionals who are charging clients to carry out the research, to make site-specific recommendations and proposals, and they're not actually having the time or you know, making the time to read information that's in a paragraph format, that's a problem. I, th I think there needs to be perhaps some industry-level dialogue here that is blunt and frank about the challenges that we're facing because so far these conversations, you know, they're well understood really, to be honest, within the world of landscape architecture. But it's kind of like our, our, our dirty secret in a way. No one really wants to have that conversation because it's pretty uncomfortable. To, to offer, I don't know, a, a different take on it, I wonder how analogous that situation is to, say, work around environmental impact assessments and you know, reports made by ecologists that are then not taken up by in the construction industry. Or I think there are probably various different sectors where this sort of lack of attention to the detail that should be incorporated into practice uh, because of frictions. So because of the way that reports are written, we feel like we have to write long reports, but actually who's going to digest those? Absolutely. This is, it's not just conservationists and ecologists who face this problem either. It's every sector of the supply chain in the development industry. Um, I've got colleagues who work in mechanical electrical engineering, civil engineering, so on. This is a major problem with reports. To take a very specific and local example, um, a building survey was carried out of the Botanic Garden here. It is over a thousand pages long. We've only got six buildings on site, you know. It is an indigestible survey. It's impractical. No one can make use of it because it's just simply so long. As you go through the document, you realise that there are title pages, blank pages. You get pages which say things like, this page is purposely left blank. By the time you actually take out the number of pages in that document that aren't reporting on something, by the time you take out the information about setting the professional credentials out for the person carrying out the report, all that kind of thing, we were left with a much smaller report. The trouble is that when you put these kind of large reports, which very often rely on set templates or kind of text that is recycled, by the time you take this into a contractual framework, which rely on collateral warranties, um, distributed supply chains, um, complex procurement routes, all this kind of thing, these reports become very quickly things which are simply tick boxes. It's a situation where a developer will know that the chances of enforcement are very low. And so they know what they can kind of push their luck with. And if they have a stop notice put on site, it's much cheaper to kind of deploy the Mark Zuckerberg defence and say, sorry, and off to fix something, than it is to put in place very often the practices which are recommended and that cascade through from the ecological report. Yeah, I suppose one uh, possible solution aside from from the big stick uh solution would be in continuing public education i think that hopefully brings me quite naturally onto your role as uh director of the botanic garden at st andrews 
I was just wondering what role do you see places like the Botanic Garden playing in the decades to come where we are facing this climate crisis, we are facing uh, a biodiversity crisis. So what role do organizations like yours uh, have going forward? It's a funny one in a way. On one level, there is the kind of institutional question. What is the role of a botanic garden? And we can talk about conservation, we can talk about education and so on. When you look at the botanic garden in St Andrews, it's quite an interesting one in that we've been on a big journey. You know, the botanic garden started out as a research facility for the university, studying morphological, physiological differences between plants. And then in the 90s, it became a garden that was largely managed by the local authorities um, for the benefit of the community. So there's that kind of aesthetic com- component to it. It's the relaxation, it's the leisure, it's the attraction, um, it's the tourism angle. And where we are now at for the St. Andrews Botanic Garden is going through a process of recovering that research mission and recovering that conservation mission and putting that back at the heart of what we're doing. So for sure, education, communication, engagement are fundamental to what we need to do and to what we want to provide for the community. But that needs to be underpinned by really meaningful research and conservation. So it's an interesting time for us in a sense because we're going through this, um, well, it's publicly visible. It's a very publicly <laughs> visible transformation in the garden um, of recovering that research mission and putting in place the tools and the facilities to do the kind of research that's needed to address some of the things that we've been talking about. I was at the gardens at the weekend and I was climbing all over your sand dunes, Harry. Can you tell us more about why they're there and the Tangle Bank project? For sure. Um, This is perhaps the most visible transformation when I talk about that kind of change and recovering of the mission and so on. Um, In the heart of the garden, and perhaps what the garden is best known for historically, has been um, two things. One has been this range of glasshouses, which have got all kinds of uh, tropical plants in, warm temperate plants, arid plants, desert plants, um, and then also these order beds, which lay out all of the world's plants in temperate kind of communities in this range of beds laid out using an arrangement by a biologist uh, called Robert Conquest. These kind of features in the middle of the garden are yeah, what the garden has been best known for, but they have over time started to play less of a role for research and conservation and less of a role even for engagement and education because biologists don't really use these plants in these ways any longer. So we came to a situation during lockdown where we started looking at these resources which require a huge amount of work to maintain, a huge amount of pest control, watering, heating, uh, person hours to weed and manage, edge all the borders, that kind of thing, and really started to reflect on are we communicating these stories of plant relationships, the way that ecological function scales from an individual organ through to an individual plant, through to a community, are we telling these stories effectively and are we creating rich opportunities for habitats and conservation too? And the answer we came to was quite an uncomfortable one in a way, which was to say, We are, but we're not doing it as effectively as we could. So, we've embarked on this transformational change and been through a really extensive research and design process to make this change and to respond to the biodiversity crisis. And I guess one of the things we can do as a small organisation is be nimble. You know, we can adapt quickly in ways that other conservation charities or um, botanic gardens, organisations like, dare I say, even the university, we can act faster than a lot of other people can. And what we've done is try to do that and take advantage of that situation. And what we've done in the middle of the garden is try to have that courage of our conviction, you know. And we've been through a process of auditing, sharing all the plant material in those collections in the very heart of the garden, and then distributed them. And in their place, we are creating three habitats that reflect some of the areas or habitats in Fife that are most threatened by climate change and biosecurity risk, which is to say meadows, sand dunes, and urban habitats. And in the middle of the garden, we are creating gradients 
of ecological systems between meadows, which are kind of in some areas dappled and open, and in some areas more kind of like what you'd call like a wood meadow, transitioning into sand dune networks, where you've got dune slats, you've got four dunes, mobile dunes, fixed dunes, and then transitioning into urban habitats. And these are really exciting for us, not only because they kind of make it accessible and visible to people visiting the garden, the range of habitats and the richness that is right on our doorstep. You know, we think of it as kind of doorstep bottom. We're making that visible and accessible in ways that you can't easily see. If you go to Tentsmith, for example, one of the richest habitats in Fife, it's really hard if you're in a chair or if you've got mobility issues to actually see some of the jewels that exist in these habitats from a plant perspective. We've put those dunes right in the middle of the garden, created boardwalks through them so that you can see right up close Grasopanathus, sea century, these kind of incredibly beautiful, interesting plants that you'd otherwise have no idea existed. And the same with these urban habitats. We're taking down the glass houses. In fact, you might be able to hear some drilling in the background. Those are the glass houses being removed as we speak. Um, these are profound changes for a botanic garden. They go at the heart of this kind of question of what are we, what are we doing, why are we here? And what we're trying to say is there is a richness of plant life right on our doorsteps that is easily missed, is easily misunderstood. When we start talking about cacti and aloes and begonias and tropical orchids, it's very easy to think of conservation as something that happens in Borneo. Of course, it does happen in Borneo, but it also needs to happen on our doorstep. And what we're trying to say here in the Botanic Garden in St Andrews is that there is a wild life that's right on our doorstep that is otherwise invisible or misunderstood or missed. And if we can just show people how wild and beautiful it is, that might inspire people to use a little bit less glyphosate, plant a few more seeds. Um, at the same time, we can use this system of plants that we're creating to address some of the big open questions in ecology and botany, like what is the interface between a functional trait and a dem demographic trait? What does stress tolerance mean? How does resilience scale from a leaf to a woodland? You know, these are really interesting questions for us as scientists. Having things like the Tangle Bank means we can have a go at answering them in our own neighbourhoods, in our communities, at the same time as making something that's hopefully beautiful and meaningful for people who live here. Yeah, so it sounds like you've, uh, you're in the process of transforming the garden from kind of a repository of exotic plants to something that's more representative of kind of local uh, environments and local biodiversity. Absolutely. You know, we, in botanic gardens, very often we, we use the language of a museum. You know, we talk about our plant collections. We have a curator all that kind of thing. But we're kind of different to a museum because we don't just hold stuff and look at them and point at them and dust them down and make sure that they're well ventilated um, and they've got the right level of humidity. Um, we have an active mission, which is to conserve these plants, understand them, share them with other communities, with people who want to undertake community planting, for example. We have yeah, a, a different mission to what a museum or a zoo might have. Um, but nonetheless, we do use a lot of that vocabulary. I think the, the thing that keeps striking me when it comes to this moment of change and this point of difference we have with these organisations, other institutions might be, is to say that business as usual can't continue. You know, when you're faced with something like a botanic garden, you are faced with this question of change. And change is something that is inherent in what we do. You know, so when we have this transformational change happening in the garden, for a lot of people it's quite a traumatic process because they're seeing something that they love completely change or from their perspective disappear. From my perspective, from our perspective, change is simply the nature of a garden. Change is the inherent nature of life, you know. The responsible question you've got to ask yourself as someone who works in the botanic garden is, is that change meaningful? Is it beneficial? Is it supporting communities? Is it supporting habitats? It makes me think about adaptation as well. So we, we talk a lot about mitigation of climate change, but I think we're beyond the point where mitigation is a 
option is an option in a way you know, we're already probably going beyond two degrees plus degrees uh, centigrade increase um so we have to adapt so we have to be ready to accept and move with change and harry when you were saying about the right tree in the right place i was also thinking about well that that right tree will have a temporal scale as well as in over time that tree might change because climates are changing so i think we've all got to get more used to change in all aspects of our life and appreciate that nothing the only certainty is change especially in ecology and in natural semi-natural landscapes yeah and there's, there's no denying that that very often that change once you confront it or are aware of it becomes painful or difficult or uncomfortable to live with or to acknowledge or to assess but it is the fundamental nature of what we're doing it's really interesting that difference between mitigation and adaptation um, it's a really open question about how effective mitigation is I know yeah it is an open and unresolved question what I think is transparent is that adaptation is going to be an essential strategy I've been talking a lot with people working in the university about the St Andrews Forest and there's a lot of work going on to think about what plants are going to be playing a role in the St Andrews Forest and it's so easy in that sense to say oh well we should have some we should focus on native trees we should have uh, plants that are um, very familiar to us for sure we need to be including and, and putting the weight on those native trees but we need to be also really careful about whether there are provenances that are non-native or non-local that are going to be playing an important role whether a species that are going to be playing an important role and I think within that conversation of adaptation and mitigation having the ability to think beyond the species framework is going to be really useful um, because once you start to understand the richness of biological life the question of what a species is and where you might buy that in a nursery <laughs> become entangled questions you know and difficult to answer and frankly really useful a common oak quercus roba the english call it english oak in that kind of wonderful proprietary way that the english have that oak is native to northern scotland and the caspian sea you know it stretches all the way between the two and the quercus roba the the common oak there that is found there varies widely in its physiology within its range you know a quercus roba that has come from an acorn up in the cairngorms is going to have a very different landscape lifespan and a very different landscape form and a very different role to play to one that is local to St Andrews now and in 40 years time 70 years time when the climate forecast suggests that our climate can be something fairly similar to maybe Bordeaux or Brittany you know so these are questions that we're all going to have to navigate in a very practical and local sense. So Harriet, in the past, and even we, we continue to hear it even on this podcast, uh, this specific podcast even, we've heard calls for, for planting more trees in response to climate change. But at least in the public arena, the discussion tends to just stop there. It's just plant trees. Do you have any more substantial advice for any of those listeners out there who want to try and make a difference or contribute in their own way? For sure. It's really difficult to know where to turn next. You know, when you're confronted with a sense of urgency and a sense of need and you want to make a difference, the thing I'd say is organisations like Botanic Gardens exist for this very reason. You know, we can help. Come and talk to us. Um, come and have a chat because we're here and wanting to talk to people about planting, whether that's woodlands and community, whether it's in your front garden or back garden, um, if it's in your school, if it's in your area in the hospital or something we can help it's something which we're kind of always open to and um, people come to us for quest with questions we go and hopefully try and meet people where they are too and there's a quite an active outreach program that we're involved with which takes advice into communities and hopefully make and, and does make plants available for people to use in in, in different schemes and um, i'd say i'd say my suggestion would be let's start having those conversations um, there's a whole world of information that's available if you know where to look or can access it very often accessing that information is difficult so find someone who can be that med person in the middle and and that's really what we can do as botanic gardens we can be that person in the middle and, and help you find the, 
the information and the plants that you need. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. So I think that just about brings our, our time to an end. Thank you very much for, for joining us today, Harry. Yeah, thank you, Harry. Fascinating. Oh, thanks. It's been really nice to see you eh? and, uh, and talk about some of these questions. Uh, and of course, we'll include the contact details for the St. Andrews Botanic Gardens on the website for this podcast. So if you do have any questions that you'd like to, to send Harry or his team, then uh, you'll be able to, to email them there. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, we'd, um, we'd, we'd love to see. Yeah. I really enjoyed that interview with Harry. I thought we covered an incredible range of topics. I mean, to be honest, much more than I was expecting. It was fascinating. I could have stayed here all day talking to Harry and you. <laughs> Lydia, you've actually been working on a related project with the St. Andrews Botanic Gardens. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, it's a very fortuitous project, really. Uh, so I met Harry at a British Ecological Society conference, their annual conference, about two years ago now. He was just coming to St Andrews to become the director of the gardens, and he wanted the gardens to become more involved in the research and teaching that's going on in the University of St Andrews. So when Harry got here, I started thinking about potential ways that we could collaborate, but also wanted to make the most of a whole bunch of photographs that myself and colleagues had taken whilst doing four months of fieldwork in the Peruvian Amazon in 2019. So the research project that I've been working on has been funded by the Leave Hume Trust, and the principal investigator is Dr Katie Ruku, who's based at the School of Geography and Sustainable Development. And this project's intention is primarily to understand how people interact with the lowland peatlands of the Peruvian Amazon. So other colleagues are trying to find out more about exactly where the peatlands are, what what the vegetation is in these areas, how deep the peat is, how much carbon, a global goal really is to try and understand how much carbon is stored in peatlands and in these areas which are only recently really being mapped. I mean, people have obviously known that there are these boggy, swampy areas within the Amazon, but we're, we're trying to map them, create models of where the peatlands are. And specifically in this project, trying to understand who lives there and how they interact with the peatlands and whether the peatlands are important at the local level and why. If they are important, why are they important? So I spent, along with various colleagues, four months in the Peruvian Amazon back in 2019 and took loads of photos. And whilst I was there, I felt so lucky to be there and to be living with and interacting with these communities, which have such rich lives in um, the forest, in these very diverse habitats, quite far away from any large commercial centres. Uh, and I remember standing on a riverbank one evening, quite quite close to when we were leaving the final community we were spending time in, thinking, this is just such a privilege to be here and to have had an insight into the lives of these people and I, I thought of how rich their lives were which sounds a bit corny but you know how much they interact with their local environment and to a great extent survive off it I mean less so now because globalization or whatever we want to call it is getting into even the most remote tributaries of the Amazon rainforest but the, the processes that these people undertake in order to, for example, weave a mat, you know, they collect resources from palm trees, they turn the central trunk of a palm tree into fibre, they dye that fibre using leaves from their farms that they've cultivated from forest plants, they make the dye, they dye the fibre, then they weave these incredible mats and each of their children will get one to take them through life processes like that that I got to witness it's very difficult to explain that in words really or to even it's, it's not a central part of the research I'm doing so I would never necessarily talk someone through that story but having the photographs that relay that story along with all of the others that we took um, that provide context to this area to the people that live there um, to the diverse, diversity of ecosystem we wanted to showcase them really and create a way of engaging the public in the research that we're doing uh, and try and 
bring them to the swamps of Peru if we can. Um, so I, I got some funding from the British Ecological Society to do a photography exhibition in person at the gardens, but also online. So there is a virtual version of the exhibition that anybody can access and that will hopefully stay online for perpetuity. We'll actually include the link to that exhibition on the podcast page for this episode. So if you head over to the Centre for Energy Ethics website, it may actually be where you're listening to this now, but if you head over to the Energy Ethics website, uh, go to podcasts, click on this episode link, and you'll have all the links to the news articles, Harry's work, but also to this exhibition right there for you. Great. Thanks, James. So please do go check that out. We also have a couple of upcoming and current events here at the Centre for Energy Ethics. Upcoming, we've got the EE 2021 conference at the end of October, and registration is now open. So you can register to attend that. That's going to be 100% virtual, so you can attend it from the comfort of your own uh, living room, bedroom, home office, uh, from around the world, wherever you'd like. And we're doing it via VFAIRS, so that there will be some virtual conference space for you to, to walk around and explore. We've got virtual booths set up so you can check out those as well as all the uh, the seminars and lectures. Uh, we've got a fairly packed three days, so uh, do come along and enjoy that if you're interested. Again, the link to the registration page will be on the podcast site. And open right now, and quite related to uh, the Pete exhibition, we've got the relaunch of the, the old Art of Energy Gallery, which had all the prize winners uh, and shortlisted entries to the Art of Energy competition from back in February. But we've also launched two additional gallery sites within the same virtual world. So we've got now three 3D model buildings uh, in this world. And the, the two new special exhibitions uh, feature work from around the University of St. Andrews, including some of Lydia's, and work from the Memory of Oil Museum's workshop. So if you're at all interested in that, we've got videos, poems, as well as photographs and art pieces, anything that you uh, could think of representing an alternate media to do with, with energy and sustainability and the work that's going on in and around the center. So uh, if you have a spare 20 minutes or so, please head over to that and, and explore that 3D world that Nathan and his team have created for us. Aside from that, I, I think that's about all in terms of the, the plugs that we've got this episode. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can follow the Center for Energy Ethics on Twitter and LinkedIn. And don't forget to like the All About Energy podcast page on Facebook. We're really trying to build the profile of the center and this podcast in particular. So share this with a friend and uh, we'll be there in no time. That's all from me. Once again, uh, thank you very much, Lydia, for agreeing to be our co-host. We'd absolutely love to have you back. If you'd like to be back. Yeah, I'd love to come back. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much for having me, James. And I guess finally, thank you uh, to those at home who have listened to this whole episode. I've been James, and we hope you hear from us soon. Bye.